Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Psachim, daf Kuf Yotet, page 119. Again, in the home stretch. I know I keep plugging it. If you haven't yet, please join us for our Siyam. We can't wait to finish Masach Psachim with you. Uh, Shkalim is going to be its own uh, interesting book, uh, but we'll get straight to the daf now. I just want to share two things on Amad Aleph that stood out for me. Uh, the first is really at the top. It says the following. Um, so the Gemara there was before quoting um, another Pasuk, um, and it's quoting the second half of that Pasuk now, um, which says, uh, which literally means uh, for for stately clothing, I guess is how some of the English translation would be. This is someone who conceals, right? Like mechasa, like a you know mask. Um, the matters or things that have to do with atikomim, things of ancient days, right? Umayni, right? So they those things were concealed. Umayninu, and what are these? Sitrei Torah, the secrets of Torah. So what exactly is that? They don't say on the daf what exactly the sitrei Torah is. The mafreshim explained that that would be uh, particular parts of Bereshi, like how did creation actually happen, and also the very famous piece, which we call the Masa Merkava, right? The vision of the chariot of the Kisea Kavod that Yechezkel has um, in that Sefer. The Ika de Amri and others say, right? This Pasuk is basically talking about someone who reveals matters of the ancient days concealed, right? What are these? These are reasons for the different mitzvot. So the first half of this passage, you know, it makes sense. In other words, like, yes, we know that there's esoteric sort of knowledge contained in the Torah, right? The creation, the Masem Merkava. Okay, that's not, I think, telling anybody anything new. But the Eka de Amri here was interesting, right? That the idea that sort of the reasons for the mitzvot, the Tamei Torah, that needs to be kept a secret. Um, and I think we can understand why, because once we start sort of rationalizing, why do we keep this mitzvah? Or what's the meaning that we get from that mitzvah? It's just as easy to rationalize away maybe why you don't have to keep that particular mitzvah. So um, the Tamei Torah, uh, you know, and keeping that a secret, they don't really elaborate on it, but, but it does make sense to me. Um, I want to skip down to one other piece here, which I thought was interesting in this stuff. And then, Anne, I'll let you respond and then get to your part. So we see these types of stories all throughout the Gemara where it wants to show that, look, that the characteristics of Hashem are not like the characteristics of a human. Right? A human, right, when he's conquered, he's sad. When Hashem is conquered, right, Hashem rejoices. And here's the Pasuk, and they're quoting here a Pasuk uh, in Tehillim, Perak Membav, Pasuk Chaf Gimel, chapter 106, verse 23. Right? So it says, therefore, he said, Hashem said, right, Hashem would destroy them but not Moshe, Hashem's chosen one, who stood before Moshe in the breach. Um, and so really what it's, what's interesting here is, is that what it's referring to is, is that Moshe basically convinces Hashem, right? And this is what we're saying, defeats Hashem 
by convincing Hashem not to destroy the Jewish people. We see this in multiple places in Shemot and Bamidbar, right? B'nai Israel sin. Hashem wants to, um, you know, kill them. Um, the most famous one is when Moshe, you know, says the Yud Gimumidot, right? The 13 attributes of mercy. Um, and But what, the, what they're reading into here in the Pasuk is, is that even though Moshe convinces Hashem not to go through with Hashem's plan of destroying B'nai Israel, Moshe is still called Bichiro. Moshe is still called Hashem's chosen one. Um, and, you know, that in a way that Hashem was happy that Moshe defeated him. But even the language here, right, that of, of Netzach, that somehow like a human could defeat God is, is fascinating. A lot to unpack. I've never seen this kind of language before. Was really taken by it. I thought for sure you were going to mention the Tanor Shalachnai. Oh, I wasn't because I always mention the Tanor Shalachnai. Please connect but it's it. Like- <laughs> but it's but right. This is the this is the example where at the end of the whole discussion we're going to get to it in Bavmatzi, and we know that we're not going to get to it really to see it inside until then. But this is the discussion of where there's a whole dis, a whole back and forth fight amongst Chazal where everybody's bringing you know a stronger argument against the other one, and at the end of the day, so you know they bring a verse that says you know the Torah lo he right, and that that trumps. Oh, I, I, I've not, I've not told this well. Your Dana, see, this is why you're the one who's supposed to talk about the story, right? There's a bat call that comes to give all the proofs, and then at the end of the day, the antidote to the bat call, the answering up of the bat call, is Lobashamayim. The Torah is no longer found in, in the heavens. You know, it's up to the human beings who are going to interpret it. And that Gemara concludes with God laughing and saying, "Nitzchuni banai," that my children have have won. My children have beat me in, at this game, so to speak. And I think that that's exactly what you're talking about here. Yes, I, I hear what you're saying here. All right, we're going to have to remember this tomorrow when we get to Tadnor Shalak Night. Thank you. Okay, so now I'm jumping to an Ahmed Bet. Well, we're back talking about Hallel, which uh, the fact is, I, I keep thinking, you know, how much attention to Hallel, which we have not actually discussed as much as we have discussed, there's much more here that we have not. Um, this Gemara is, you know, there's paying a tremendous amount of attention to many different component parts of Halal. And I think that part of that is the experience of the Seder. I think that, you know, there's a long part of Halal before the meal. There's a longer, I mean, I think it feels longer part of Halal after the meal. So I think that, it, the, you know, the same way that this whole parak, this whole chapter of the Gemara is going through the process and the order of the Seder, it makes sense that they would then use this opportunity you know, you know, where in all of Shas are they going to delve into Hallel? This to me makes sense as a logical place to do it. Uh, Darash Ravi, Rav Avira, Zimnin Amarla Mishmed Rav Ami, Zimnin Amarla Mishmed Rav Asi. It's, it's clear, not clear who actually said this statement. Sometimes they quote in the name of Rav Ami and sometimes they say in the name of Rav Asi. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of that is the um, ancient equivalent of a typo because the Samach of Asi and the Mem of Ami are not so different, depending on your handwriting, um, or at least in terms of print and script, I guess they look more different. And so they're going to try to explicate the verse. The, that the child was, was grown and weaned. And this is a, a reference to Yitzchak, to the patriarch Isaac, as he grows, right? And at the time that he is weaned, the story goes, the Midrash says, that Avram made a great feast. So the parallel of this, or the 
the conclusion of this statement that Avram made this great feast on the time that Yitzchak was weaned, and that's a, a you know biblical verse in Bereshit Kaf Aleph, because in the future God will make a feast for the righteous on the day that He Sheyigmol. This is um that He is merciful to the descendants of Yitzchak. The idea that something in Yitzchak's being you know will engineer God's mercy on his descendants, and therefore we will merit, or they will merit a great feast. And then, after they eat and they drink, then what they do is they will give a, the cup of wine to, to Avram to make the bracha, to make the blessing, because he's the first of the avot, of the forefathers. Which, of course, is such a, an interesting juxtaposition, because we're talking about the descendants of Yitzchak and coming back, as it were, to Avram as the first forefather to have the honor of, I, it seems to me that we're talking here about a long-term relationship between this family and God. And then Avram will say, I'm sorry, I can't make this blessing. He says, you know, the, the prediction that this is what Avram will do, he will decline. Because I was the father of Yishmael. And look at you know, the implication being, and look at all the ill that Yishmael has brought to the world or all the animosity between the descendants of Yishmael and Yitzchak. So they say, well, then take the cup and give it to Yitzchak and Yitzchak should take it and make the blessing. And Yitzchak says, no, no, I can't make the blessing. Because I had a son, Esav. And look at, again, the implication being, look at all the ill that was wrought by Esav and his descendants against Yaakov and his descendants. So, okay, take the cup and, and make the blessing. They say to Yaakov, Yaakov also declines. I married two sisters who are alive at the same time. It wasn't prohibited at the time that I did it, but in the future, the Torah is going to come back and you know retroactively prohibit it against what I did. So that kind of transgression, you know, kicks him out of the running as to be the tzaddik who should make this to make this blessing. So then Yaakov says. Or the implication is that Yaakov is saying to, to Moshe, take the cup and make the blessing. Of course, Moshe says, I can't make the blessing. That shouldn't surprise us. Moshe is anav mikol adam. He's so humble. But Moshe says as follows, I didn't get to merit to go into Eretz Yisrael, to the land of Israel, not when I was alive and not even in his death, meaning Moshe was not buried in the land of Israel, right? Despite all of his many years of leading B'nai Israel to get there, Omer lo Yoshua. So he says to Yoshua, "Tul uvarech, take the cup and bless." Omer lahen eni mevarech. Yoshua also declines. Shelo zachiti leven, because Yoshua. Um, the story goes that, or the inferences from the biblical text is that Yoshua did not have any children. Dechtiv Yoshua ben Nun, Nun beno Yoshua beno. Um, the story is that Nun. Yeshua is the son of Nun, and then in then in the list under Ephraim and Ephraim, it says Nun, his son, Yeshua, his son, meaning there's no list of any children of Yeshua. So the implication is that he had no sons, and this is discussed elsewhere more extensively um, about Yeshua himself. And then Omer lo le David. So finally, Yeshua says to David, "Tulu varech, you know, enough already, right? Take the take the cup and make the blessing." Omer lahen ani avarech, I will make the blessing. And not only that, it is appropriate, it is, it is nice, it is fitting that I should make this blessing. Because of this verse from Tehillim, 
Psalms, Mizmor, the, the Psalm 116, verse 13, where it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call uh, and I will call on the, on the name of the Lord. And this, of course, is, is exactly the discussion of salvation, that it finally makes sense that in, the, in all of the genealogy here that's going on of who's going to be the righteous person who's going to be able to uh, carry out this halal, carry out this praise of God, it's not surprising that the, that the words of halal themselves come from David HaMelech's um, poetry, right, from his, from his Mizmore Tehillim. So it's a long, um, repetitive narrative that is really kind of, it goes through the generations and points out, I would like to say again, that we do not uh, pretend that there is perfection where there is not perfection. And the fact is, I'm sure somebody could come up with some reason that David himself should have declined this. But because I think, because the verse is in Tehillim, which is again, at least in, in the in the sum total of the book ascribed to David, it becomes appropriate and fitting for him to be the one to, in fact, recite the blessing to praise God um, for this salvation. I I loved this passage in the Gemara. Um, you know, the, this idea of looking at each of these, you know, men and saying, you know, or sort of they're admitting what's wrong with them, and they land on David Hamelach, which. David Hamelch to me is like one of the most complicated and complex characters. <laughs> so it's also so interesting that that's who he lands on. Like, in other words, also, the, some of the things that are wrong with David Hamelch, it seemed like those were things he had free will or choice over, right? You know, the chait with Bathsheba, things like that. But, you know, some of these things, like that Yishmael came out of Abraham, I don't know, does he really have control, control over that? What's he responsible for when it comes to that? So, from a theological level, this passage, I I guess what we're doing on today's stuff is I'm quoting and discussing pieces, and then I'm just going to say, but I have a lot to unpack, and I don't have the time <laughs> to do it on this podcast. Well, I will just say also that the commentary that I have, you know, some, some of what I've seen here also notes that David HaMelech is the first king that comes, that we come to in this list, right? And so, it, you know, again, it's fit, it's fitting for the king for a king to praise the king of kings, right? The all of these, like the the poetic license, I would say, to line things up in a beautiful way, is enough sometimes, right? It's not can you find something wrong with David? Of course, we can find something wrong with David, and then we can find something right about that too, right? Because he's a Balchuva, and we don't criticize Balichuva, right? Meaning because he 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 recognizes the wrongdoing that he did, um, that we so much is blamed for him with. The story of Bathsheba and Uriah, but you know, David Amalek wasn't allowed to build the Beit Hamikdash. Meaning, we could go on and on, and yet I say this is Tehillim. So we stop with David because to me that makes sense. Yeah, it's I right, but I right. Obviously, they wanted to land there because of the Tehillim, but the whole passage is fascinating. Um, I'm just going to end uh, today's episode with a very very famous Mishnah. Right, so this gets quoted in the Haggadah. We see this all over the place. One does not conclude after the Korban Pesach with Afikoman. Um, and then the Gemara goes on, you know, my Afikoman Amarav Chabura. So Rav says that it means members of a group that ate the Korban Pesach together shouldn't leave that group to go to another group. In other words, you stay where you you ate. You need to eat it in a single location. Ushmul Amar Kugon or delay li because alai la'aba. So he says it means not eating mushrooms for me 
and chicks for Abba. In other words, he's talking about that it's another delicacy that you would eat after the meal. Um, and then, you know, some other Amorim go on to talk about what is it a specific food that the Afikoman refers to, but the idea of sort of not eating um, another food. And then we get to the other famous line here, Amor of Yehuda, Amor Shmuel, Right. So I think all of this gets confusing, right? This is saying we don't conclude after matzah with an afikoman because when we use the word afikoman, we mean it to me the matzah that we eat at the end of everything. But it's really not what it means in the Talmud itself. So that's, you know, I had to read this passage because it's just interesting to see how it actually appears in context, how it's actually used today. Right. Well, so I just want to go through the word itself, right? Afikoman. Because it's it's a it's a very familiar word to us because of what it means is the afikoman, right? That that matzah that stands in for the korban pesach at the very end of the seder. But the question is, what is the word really? So it's possible that the word is just Greek, you know, that it, it, the word is afikoman or some Greek, more Greek sounding pronunciation of this, and that it in fact may have simply been a food that is part of the meal, or perhaps that it's a more specifically a food that is taken after the meal. Uh, there is also, I saw a commentary that says as follows, that it may be a smush of the words, the, there's an Aramaic phrase, afiku mani, which means take out the vessels, in which case, again, apparently that would be, you know, at the end of the meal, right? So then if that's the case, I mean, it, it doesn't change the, the practical function of what the afikoman is. I'm just, I was curious about the etymology. Um, and then the, I saw that there's one opinion in the Yushalmi in the Talmud Yerushalmi that says that there's actually some kind of, that it means a specific kind of song and that when, and then once you get to that portion of the Seder that you have that kind of song, then you don't, you know, then you don't continue afterwards. You don't eat afterwards. Rav Natan says, don't talk, you know, don't chit chat afterwards. Um, this, it's a very strong statement about the end of the Seder, which I feel like, I think some people take it very, very seriously and, you know, presumably don't even engage in chit chat afterwards. And other people, I think, take it more as a loose guideline um, because I, I think it's a, a hard statement. I think it's an unusual statement. You know, the idea that a, a piece of matzah represents a whole korban, a whole sacrifice, animal sacrifice, meat at your table is is difficult, I think. Right. And uh, we'll see how this plays out tomorrow on tomorrow's DAF. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our Benit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of its unpacking, as I like to call it, that it needs. Maybe you can unpack on our Facebook page. Um, And until tomorrow, go and learn.